Welcome to the American Thoracic Society's section on medical education podcast. My name is James Town. I'm a pulmonary and critical care fellow at the University of Washington. This is our third edition of the SOME podcast, so if you're listening for the first time, thanks for tuning in. And for those of you who listen to the other episodes, thank you for coming back. All the episodes are available on the ATS website at www.thoracic.org slash about slash ATS dash podcasts. You can also find the podcast by clicking through the section on medical education area on the ATS website, as well as from iTunes or through your favorite podcast app, along with all the other ATS podcasts. We would love to hear your thoughts on the podcast and what other topics you'd like to hear about. So please drop us a line at meded at thoracic.org. That's meded at thoracic.org. And please put podcasts in the subject line so it gets filtered to us. We'll also put some notes about today's show on the website. So take a look there for links to some of today's topics and the articles cited within today's show. On to today's topic. How do we teach medical education? Many of us are interested in teaching and learning in medicine. And so I began to think about how we actually train our medical educators. A number of medical schools and universities have developed teaching academies and other types of programs for med- medical educators, and there's a literature about these programs as well. Here at the University of Washington, there's a long-standing program called Teaching Scholars, which is a one-year-long professional development program for medical educators run by the Department of Bioinformatics and Medical Education at the University of Washington. It's probably very similar to other programs that are around the country, and the, t- the topics of the course run the gamut from teaching techniques at the bedside, curricular development, medical education research, and so on. I participated in the UW's Teaching Scholars Program during my pulmonary critical care fellowship, and I would often reflect on how my training in medical education paralleled the training that my co-fellows were getting in their research disciplines. So I became curious about what the value of these programs is for participants and for their institutions is, and so I sat down with Lynn Robbins, the director of UW's program, who's been doing this for about 15 years. In addition to her role as the director of the Teaching Scholars Program, she's a phenomenal educator in her own right, and so we'll also talk with her about some other med-ed topics. So let's move on to the interview. So Lynn Robbins, thank you very much for sitting down with me today. Maybe you can introduce yourself to our audience so we get all of your titles correct. So, so yeah, I'm Lynn Robbins. I'm a professor in the Department of Biomedical Informatics and Medical Education, and I've been the director of the Teaching Scholars Program since about 2002. Perhaps you can tell us about the origins of this program and and the purpose that it serves. Sure. So the Teaching Scholars Program was actually founded by the former chair of my department, who's Chuck Doner. He's no longer alive. And Dave Irby, who is quite alive and kicking over at the University of California at San Francisco, they began the program, I think, in response to needs to develop leaders within the UW School of Medicine. And uh, they were just simply brilliant in conceiving the program. They had a, a vision for really growing people here, promoting them up the ranks, Uh, And they focused on leadership development, professional development, and they were very, very, very passionate about teaching. I mean, Dave Erb, he's one of the founders of of medical education, so to speak, and has written voluminously about uh, how to teach in the clinical setting and the way that medical education should be structured. And so Dave and Chuck began the program believing that 
they could have a handful of people go through the program. I think they began with six to eight people. And, and when I came to the University of Washington in about 1999, 2000, Chuck was still doing the program. Dave had left the university. And I sat at Chuck's side and watched how he did the program. Then when he decided he was going to let go of the reins, uh, he asked me if I wanted to take over, and I said yes. It was already the best part of what I was doing at the University of Washington. I loved the cohort. I loved um, just the depth of conversation that takes place in teaching scholars. And I changed the program. I did an evaluation of the program to see what people liked and didn't like. And part of what I learned was that as it was originally structured, it was a series of courses which had the advantage of allowing people to get credit, um, course credit for teaching scholars. But it also allowed that people could, people other than teaching scholars, could come in and out of the program. For me, where I saw the power of the program was in the development of the cohort. So I quickly moved to make the program a program that was solely for teaching scholars and that wouldn't require separate registrations for a bunch of disparate courses. And I also um, increased the size of the cohort from you know half a dozen to now it's been pretty much hovering around 20 for the past number of years. And the program has evolved somewhat because um, when I came in it was already becoming the case that clinician educators needed to be able to do scholarly research. So now I think we focus mostly on teaching and doing scholarship and leadership, I think, has, I, don't, I wouldn't say that it's fallen to the wayside, but we're getting much um, more novice folks into teaching scholars. And so there's just a little bit less about leadership than there has been in the past. I think really the toughest nut to crack in all of this is how to give people who are going through just a 10-month program, um, the kinds of tools they need to, to really succeed as education researchers. Other teaching scholars programs are two years, but because this is legacy here, 10 months, and the chairs are not always so willing to let people off for two years that we're likely not going to be able to change that. So, again, I think we're we're trying to find ways, given feedback from former teaching scholars, uh, to build on the program as it is and build networks among teaching scholars, graduates, and others who are interested in doing scholarship through CLIMB. Well, that's interesting to hear how the program has morphed from focusing on the development of local leadership in medical education to one with more research-oriented education for its participants. Now you mentioned CLIMB in your response. For the listeners, CLIMB is an acronym for the UW's Center for Leadership and Innovation in Medical Education, our institution's multidisciplinary education community, which, Lynn, you also co-direct. So I can see how this grew out of your interest in the growth of the cohort of educators and building a supportive community for them. So now with 15 to 20 participants each year at UW's program alone, that sounds like a lot of alumni. 
How do you attract the outcomes of programs like these? And what's the value of the program to the participants and to their institutions? I hear that you and another teaching scholar alumnus, Joshua Hadegi, an emergency medicine physician here, have been thinking about this question. So Joshua Hadegi and I have been working on a project looking at teaching scholars at the UW, at UCLA, at UCSF, and University of New Mexico, trying to get a handle on what are the consequences of going through a program like this. And all the data indicate that they're very positive. So the question is, why don't schools require this? Or, you know, should schools require this? You know, does it matter? Does it not matter? I think increasingly some either certification or degree matters because there's just more awareness that being a good teacher actually requires that you need to know something about what works in teaching. It's not just a popularity contest. It's not just, you know, having charisma. You actually have to use certain teaching principles to ensure that learning is occurring. So I, I think the more that that's recognized and acknowledged, the more likely it is that some sort of sign-off on the fact that you have those skills is, is going to matter. What form that takes, I don't know. But as I say, there, there are about 60 or so of these teaching scholars programs around the U.S. They're very well um, thought of. Um, our, the leaders get together at our annual meetings. We discuss what works, what doesn't. Um, we discuss where we'd like to go from from teaching scholars to ensure that our graduates are successful. You know, CLIMB was is a response, a UW response to uh, the fact that people get out of teaching scholars and programs like this, and they feel lost because you had a community and then you don't have a community, and so what do you do? Or I've learned this much, and now I'd I'd like to keep learning. Um, other schools have academies. I think we just need to keep clinician educators, we need to sustain their vitality. I, I think we all know that if you lose clinician educators, it's expensive to replace them. Um, and I think you lose them when they begin to feel discouraged or that nobody's listening to them or nobody values the knowledge that they have. and. I think our medical students and residents only benefit from having people who are trained to teach and think about teaching. Well, I hope not too many clinician educators out there are feeling lost or discouraged, but I imagine a lot of them would agree with you about the value they provide and maybe not always getting that recognition. On a related note, I came across this article you co-authored in Medical Teacher titled 12 Tips for Developing, Implementing, and Sustaining Medical Education Fellowship Programs building on new trends and solid foundations. In speaking about the value of a professional development program for medical educators, tip five of the 12 tips says, quote, evaluate your program and emphasize the social return on investment. What do you mean by this, and how do you make this case to people in positions of power? Yeah, well, if I had the answer to that, <laughs> I'd be way ahead of the curve here. I think the idea here is that we've spent a lot of time thinking about why should somebody invest in a program like this? And, you know, one of the ways that people have tended to think about this is to look at CVs before and after and count the number of publications, 
before and after. But I, I don't think it's all about the individual. I think, again, it's about changing the culture in which people are working. I think about the long-term consequences of a program like this. I think about changing our institution into an institution that's focused on education and teaching. I know I joke about this with colleagues that it's the irony in that medical schools aren't necessarily focused on medical education but rather on some other enterprise that has to do with making money and cranking patients through a system uh, to stay afloat there's just there's just way too much irony around that that you're always having to advocate for the place of education at a medical school and I think the only way that you can change that is to really change the culture by putting people through these programs or and having them then move into positions of of power as deans as decision makers and I think slowly but surely all of us who run these programs are thinking in the same way that we've got to just position our graduates in places where they can advocate for education. So I think for me that's the social return on investment and also as we started to talk about there's the social return on investment in terms of um, again creating a a vital community of educators that support one another and that keep one another in a game that's becoming increasingly difficult to play um, and where the rewards seem to be diminishing in terms of you know the amount of time the free the amount of free time that you might have to to be with your family and friends um, I think when I listen to the interviews of the the clinician educators from across these other universities who've also been through teaching scholars everybody talks about the fact that they do their education research or they're thinking about scholarship on the weekends so they're stealing from their families and their friends to get these things done rather than um, finding time in their daily work uh, to do these things though theoretically there's supposed to be education time uh, for clinician educators so again I think those are things that need to be Changed, and I think the only people who are going to be able to change them are the educators who move into leadership positions. Here, here. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people who are listening would agree with you that they feel like they are burning the candle at both ends to do the things that are necessary to maintain their academic status and to feel successful in their careers and to utilize all of the training that they've built up to this point in something that they're passionate about. Yeah, so. everybody should be able to do what they're passionate about because if you're passionate about something, you're likely going to do it well. I, I love watching teaching scholars. You know, I love watching people say, well, you, you, you've given a name to something I've been doing for my whole life. I've been teaching, I never had the language to talk about teaching, or I've uh, thought about that, but I've never been able to articulate 
what it is that I do in the classroom. Um, and then you give, you know, as, as a scholars read about potentially other ways of being rewarded at other schools, they get excited about um, things like education value units and they start to ask questions about like why aren't these things here. I think the, you know, those are the si kinds of seeds that you can plant. Um, and if you have a cohort that's thinking about these things in, in unison, um, perhaps you can change or at least create a conversation that people will be listening to. So again, I think the social return on investment is really something to think about. Not so much, you know, what are individuals getting out of this thing, but what is this cohort getting out of this program, and how is this cohort changing the culture in which it's um, practicing? Well, I really like your layered approach to the outlook on the success of the program that it really isn't just about the individual and their scholarly product and their success, but that there's a potential systemic impact of the program on the whole culture of education in the institution. And it really seems like you're taking the long view of the impact of the program. Uh, to switch gears a little bit, Lynn, since you're a teacher of teachers and I've got you here, um, I would like to ask you to teach us a bit about something different. Um, I'd like to ask you to teach us a bit about qualitative research. I think most physicians probably learn about quantitative research during their training and their impression of qualitative research may be that it's perhaps less rigorous or somehow less serious than quantitative methods. Can you help us dispel that myth? So I think um, the value of, of qualitative research is, is that, you know, I think most everybody understands this conceptually, though maybe they don't haven't internalized it is that you are able to answer the why questions so people who are struggling to understand what makes a good teacher for example may have a slew of ratings in front of them and they can see that there are differences among teachers but unless you ask the learners like what's the difference between this teacher and this teacher you can really only begin to guess at what distinguishes a good teacher from a great teacher, from a not-so-good teacher, from the learner's perspective. So I think that whole idea that just asking people um, how they feel about things, it, it, it strikes me as odd that that's new to people, but I, you know, as somebody who came out of an anthropology program, I guess that's pretty ethnocentric of me. <laughs> <laughs> I will never forget when I was in anthropology, uh, my professors would send me out to do field work in my own environment. And what struck me was that if you approach studying your own environment um, with by approaching it as if it was strange, um, you begin to see things that you hadn't seen before. So there's this notion of anthropology in making the familiar strange, so distancing yourself so you can see things that you hadn't seen before, or making the strange familiar, that is studying things that seem strange and asking about it 
so it would become more familiar. So both sides of the coin. And, and for me, that is just the process of anthropology and, and trying to understand both the thing, the culture in which you're embedded and cultures in which you're not embedded. I think it just makes the world a much more interesting place if you're always asking why, you know, well, why is it that we practice in this format instead of just saying, well, we practice in this format because. So I think what I was telling you about was a study where I was following somebody around who was doing rounds, um, and I, what I noticed was that, um, you know, there were lots of approaches to trying to get residents to be more active in their own patient care. You know, the, the teacher who presses the resident to engage with the patient, the teacher who just stands back and waits for the resident to start engaging with their patient. Um, and, you know, I think there is a place for both, but the person who was doing the study had already developed in his mind a framework for thinking about the interaction, you know, or the teaching interaction between uh, residents and their attendings, and had come up with a checklist of behaviors that they expected to see or that they hoped they would see. Um, and I approached, you know, this from, you know, going in with a notebook and just writing down everything that I saw so that, you know, everything would be open for interpretation versus closing off things that might be noticed because you just had a checklist. I mean, but, and, and bo both are okay. I mean, you can quantify the number of behaviors or you can go in with an open book, but I think you get the richness is trying to do both at the same time because it's, it's very hard to, you know, to do enough observations to come up with a pattern for how these things unfold. Um, and people aren't necessarily willing to commit the time it takes to, um, to see patterns like that. So there are two different approaches to the same thing, but I think you just get very different perspectives on what's ultimately going on. Ironically, if people go in with checklists versus just taking field notes and coding those field notes and having an emergent structure make itself visible, the checklist is somehow seen as more objective when actually it's more subjective because it's something that was developed by the person going into the encounter versus something that somebody just wrote down verbatim and waited for, um, you know, to make sense of those multiple encounters. There's some work that we need to do in terms of selling the notion of qualitative research as subjective and quantitative research as objective. Um, I think we're all backwards about it, but that's my perspective. So Lynn goes on to talk about how, in the ideal world, qualitative research is more than just recording a bunch of field experiences and transcribing and coding them and then reporting on it, that it should also have some sort of triangulation with other data sources, such as spending time with the people or the environment 
examining documents. And all of this together results in a richer qualitative research product. And to illustrate this, she actually gives us an example of where qualitative research uncovers a phenomenon that we've all heard of. Let's take a listen. Qualitative research can be very rigorous because, you know, you begin to compare, well, does what an institution says its mission, does that match with what you're seeing in the on-the-ground on behavior? And does that match with what people are telling you is their mission? So you have three different types of data that you're actually triangulating. And I think, you know, so if you're familiar with this notion of the hidden curriculum, I mean, it really took triangulating data to identify this phenomenon of the hidden curriculum. Because, you know, if you look at the formal curriculum, there is what people say, and, and it's backed up by the documents. But when you actually go out and study what's happening on the ground, you discover, whoa, there's a mismatch there. And you wouldn't notice that if you had just asked people, well, what is you know your curriculum around fill-in-the-blank? I mean, the most obvious one is, what's your curriculum around professionalism? Um, and people have very lofty goals where professionalism is concerned, but then you discover, hmm, well, there's, there's all kinds of bias that attendings are inculcating in the clinic with how they react to certain types of patients or how they react to certain types of students. Um, and, and that's really, I, if you were just doing a numbers type of thing, if you just uh, did, say, an environmental scan using a survey, not sure that you would have come up with this concept of the hidden curriculum. There are just things that you have to ask people about and investigate, observe, and um, think about where are the disconnects. I think that's really the power of qualitative research. Unfortunately, it takes a long time to do, and people are very impatient. <laughs> it's much easier to, to just send out a survey and write it up, or to design an experimental study and and again because you can control all the variables I think it's just easier to write up a methods and conclusions session uh, you know sections based on very narrow kinds of questions if I'm much more interested in the broader kinds of questions and so I think you have to spend a lot more time investigating those so to close out today's episodes um, we put Lynn's recommendations for her favorite medical education journals for clinician educators in the show notes, as well as links to the journal websites. So take a look um, if you're interested in those things. And lastly, because Lynn was on a roll, and not to mention a master educator, I wanted to finish the interview by asking her to tell us about something she learned recently. Could be anything. About teaching, about working with different learners, anything. And as it happens, she had just gotten back from a trip to Vietnam where she was running a workshop for medical educators, and here's what she had to say. I learned recently that across the globe, <laughs> at least in the two countries in which I was currently situated, teachers are just the best people to work with because they are so other-focused. In a time where <laughs> things, everything just seems so ugly, um, that's a beautiful thing to think about. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Well, Lynn Robbins, thank you very much okay. for spending the time with us. Um, and good luck on all the things ahead of you. Thanks. That's all for this episode of the podcast. 
because this interview is longer than usual, we skipped the maintenance of certification question or MOCQ for this episode. So I apologize to those of you who listened this long waiting for it. As I said, we put links to some of the articles and some of the other topics we referenced in today's episode, as well as the other ones on the website. So take a look there and please drop us an email at meded, that's M-E-D-E-D, at thoracic.org and put podcasts in the subject line. And let us know what you think of the show and we will see you next time.